Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Powatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Powatic, and my co-host sitting across from me is Aaron Cameron. We are sitting at the Western Canada Apartment Investment Conference here in Edmonton, recording episodes live. Our guest right now is Curtis Way. He's the president of RMS Group. Welcome to the show, Curtis. Thanks very much, guys. So, Curtis, we always we always start these podcasts off with sort of a history of the guests and how they kind of got into real estate. You know, there's their story from, I don't know whether you're six years old and you wanted to be a developer or, you know, where did it start? How did it start? Interestingly enough, I was probably uh, 14 or 15 years old and my father um, had often owned houses and small apartments and it was a fellow that uh, did some work for him, and he was a house builder. And I thought, that's what I want to be when I grow up, is I want to be a house builder. Little did I know I'd end up doing uh, some fairly large apartment projects and shopping centers in my life. Anyway, I started out as a business grad, left business, and almost immediately, within a couple of years, ended up apprenticing as a carpenter. Kind of an interesting switch for a business Also, oh, literally building houses. Yeah, well, yeah, okay. I was actually <laughs> building industrial, uh, like, water reservoirs, worked on a hospital, so it was, uh, it was quite of an interesting switch from one industry to another. Anyway, I left there. Uh, I knew that after a, a second year of a carpenter apprentice, that wasn't my career. That was not meant for me. And back before the days of cell phones, I would drive at coffee and lunch to the nearest payphone booth, and I started in the yellow pages, looking up every general contractor, and I started in the A's, by the time I got to K, I got an interview with a general contractor and I was hired and started working on multi-million dollar high-rise apartments and condominiums. Probably the youngest guy in Edmonton, a 23 years old man. What, what year was this? Not to date you, but what year was this <laughs> just for the context? <clears throat> it was 76, okay. Okay. 77, probably yeah. 76. Yeah, it was a long time ago. Wow. <laughs> so, so, so yeah, so keep going. You're in, you're... Anyhow, so yeah, so we... Uh, I ended up working with them as a, a project manager. I started out, of course, as a junior guy, got to be a senior guy running large projects and with a very short period of time. Like I said, in, in the late 70s in Alberta, it was a really booming economy. There's a shortage of labor. You know, interest, I, it's interesting to point out that I've now lived through my third recession in Alberta, one of the few guys still in business, uh, probably from the 70s, quite frankly. Anyhow, we, um, I got uh, left uh, the construction company to go to the parent company, which was a real estate development company. And uh, I never forget, the, the original partners did a lot of work and uh, really, really learned a lot from those two fellas. Great, great background. Great, it was almost like going to another university, quite frankly, the education those guys gave me. But I learned uh, one very valuable lesson early on in life is that because there was a, the company had different divisions, there was competition between the divisions. So I actually had to quit my job in the construction company before the development company would hire me. So I want to tell you, I went home and told my wife and I wanted to quit my job and she thought I was crazy. And did you have surety that you were going to get hired if no, you did that? Ooh. that was it. No, the, the, president said, the president said to me, he said, I'm not hiring you because if I do, the guy that's running the construction company will come back on me. He said, so you have to quit your job. Test of faith. I uh, yeah. So, wow. you know, talk about learning lessons in your life early. I learned a few of them. <laughs> that along could have the backfired way. Oh, yeah. Badly. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, I left there, ended up in the real estate development side, and I spent uh, six or seven years with those guys. And I left after a while to start my own company. And uh, in terms of real estate development, had a couple of partners, did C store, gas bars, uh, convenience store type stuff across Western Canada. A lot of small towns. You know, every, every small town that needed a Max or a Winks in those days or a 7-Eleven, I was just about in one of them trying to do a deal. 
And uh, after a few years, one of the partners said, I'm done. I don't want to be doing this anymore. And they were silent partners, by the way. So I was the front guy. And, and I just had this company to a point where we're actually making some money cash flowing, paying my wages. And he says he's done. So we had to sell the assets. And interestingly enough, a couple of years before that, I had the guys at Robin's Donuts, which is a donut chain that's almost non-existent today, um, offered me the territory for Alberta. And I phoned them back as the offer available. They said, yep. So I became a licensee with Robin's Donuts. So I went from construction to donuts. So it's quite a big change in careers. <laughs> and I'll coffee, I guess. Coffee's yeah, coffee and donuts. And donuts yeah. yeah. So it was uh, a real a real lesson. I mean, I quite frankly, I, I never made so much money or never lost so much money in such short order in my life. It was, a, it was a really an interesting lesson because I learned that you could make a lot of money in business if you knew what you were doing and had your head screwed on right. Uh, there, there was money to be made. So, so how, many, how many stores did you, did you and, start up? I had, after four years, I think we had 12, or, no, we had 17 stores. Only in Edmonton? Or? Alberta. Alberta. Okay, yeah, Alberta. just in Alberta. 17 new stores. They yeah. kept the old stores in Alberta, so I was kind of a bit of at a disadvantage because it was a license. It was a, you know, you split the fees with the franchisee. I built the stores, sold the stores, and then the licensee, or fr- sorry, the franchisee would pay royalties, and I would split it with the head office. That's a rapid growth, though. Every couple of months, you'd be back into another yeah, one. Yeah, we were doing, I was doing a lot of deals. That was the fastest growing licensee they had in the chain, for sure. But to add to the life lesson, so uh, Tim Hortons was not in Alberta at the time. And I uh, never forget Harvey, the founding partner, uh, said, don't worry, Tim Hortons is never coming to Alberta. Well, it was four or five years later. I've never uh, heard of Tim Hortons before. Yeah, really, eh? That's <laughs> yeah. true. Never, it was never in Alberta. It was wow. in Ontario and, uh, Ontario and the East. So uh, uh, there were several licensees across Canada, and Harvey uh, is, we're at a licensee convention in Santa Bella Island, Florida, and I tried to uh, talk to the guy saying, Tim Hortons has come to Alberta, they're beating us up, they're spending money on advertising, we don't have, we can't compete against this big company. And I uh, never forget that, uh, Harvey sits back in his chair, crosses his arms, he says, Curtis, someday I wonder if we're going to be in business in five years. I couldn't believe those words coming out of the founder's mouth. So I ended up leaving very quickly thereafter and got out and went back into uh, real estate de- and development. Is so, that when uh, RMS was founded? That's right, exactly. Yeah, it was, so I started Royal Management Services, Inc. Was a, we did that as a, uh, I sort of did contract administration, uh, project management for, for a group uh, out of BC. And ended up taking off from there. And so, what was that like when you you're, you come back? To, I guess you're on a trip for business. You come back to your wife. You say, "Okay, well, I'm I'm doing it again. I'm quitting this. I'm doing something else." And, and, and wasn't happy. No, actually, she, uh, she knew you. She, she'd learned that she, you were going to land I on was, your feet. I was going to do something right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I said three different times. Uh, actually, in my life, through the dice twice with. Well, you know, they say to be successful, you got to be prepared to throw the dice, and you just got to make sure that you're. Your good decisions outweigh your bad decisions in terms of being successful. So it was, it was back to the phone booth, back to the yellow pages and flipping through. <laughs> yeah. what did, how did you do it? How did you start this? Yeah. Well, I, the contract I had was uh, with a, a large development project in uh, Grand Prairie, Alberta. It was a company out of Vancouver. So I ended up taking the contract on for six months. And turns out six months later, they were bankrupt. Pricewaterhouse steps in, takes over the company. $300 million in assets and uh, RCMP slash Pricewaterhouse could only find $80 million. Out of 300 million. So I've seen a few things in my life when it comes to real estate development and how people can mismanage and, you know, play games, so to speak. So anyway, I, I finished that up. I bought the last 20 odd acres of that subdivision, 
serviced the land and started building apartments. So that's almost 25 years ago. That why, I, why apartments at that time? The yeah. zoning of that land was apartments. So it, it was just could, it was necessity. It was like, it, oh, I guess I got to do this. It could, so have, it could have easily been warehouses or shopping centers, but that was just the, the price Waterhouse wanted out of the, the last of the quarter section. And I just started. And do you still, do you still own those today? No, I sold them a few years later. Uh, unfortunately, due to a divorce. <laughs> what, what, uh, what was the learning curve on your first uh, apartment building? <clears throat> Interestingly enough, you need to be hands-on in that business. Whether you're building or managing, the apartment world is, uh, is what I, it's not the sexy side of real estate development. You know, people want to own shopping centers because they can drive their friends by or they, they say they own a name. You know, I own a, a shopping center with a Sobeys in it or with a Walmart. Well, Walmart's a bad example. But that in apartments is, like I said, the nickel-dime side of that world and you've just got to really manage both construction costs and uh, day-to-day management. The cost can really erode your profit margin quickly. On, Hugely, uh, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I was uh, part of a panel this morning, and uh, one of the things I mentioned was that you've you've got to really be on your game as a developer in terms of not getting surprised. I mean, ask the questions. Ask as many questions as you can. So now RMS has grown. What's the evolution look like over the last sort of 20 years? Well, we're a fully integrated real estate development company today. So we start from buying raw land to um, hiring architects and engineers, building buildings, and then we property manage them at the end ourselves. So we've developed almost a million square feet under the RMS name of our own product uh, over the last 20 years. We own well over 800 apartment units in Edmonton today and warehouses, a few shopping centers. That's so been a, you know, and, and staff-wise, the construction company is a, a really big part of what we do. It does work for third parties. So it, the construction side builds uh, hotels, apartments, shopping centers, uh, car dealerships. It's a, you know, it does work for third parties, not just for us. So. And what was the logic for that full integration? A lot of, you know, it's, I find it fascinating how the decision making goes on where some developers decide they're going to focus on the development. They're going to outsource everything else, right? But you, it sounds like you've decided to, to really get a full suite of products within your one uh, you know, roof. And so what was that decision making? You know what? It's interesting to say, but it's by chance. I spent, I've always done construction of a multitude of projects, everything from industrial to apartments, to condos, to shopping centers. So I had the construction background. I had that knowledge anyhow. And I never forgot, I got a call from a... Um, a realtor one day and said, I've got some land that uh, I've got a large oil field valve company that's looking for a new space. Are you interested? So I drove up, uh, it was in Grand Prairie, drove to Grand Prairie, met with the CEO. Little did I know that he had been bought or they had been bought by Wolseley, which is the world's largest plumbing wholesaler in, in the world. And so I started doing deals for them, built to suits. Just, they needed to be in different different parts of Western Canada. There was kind of a joke for a while there that it didn't have a fort in front of it. RMS didn't go there. <laughs> fort McMurray, Fort St. John, Fort Nell. It was just, it was unbelievable. There was a period there we were doing these industrial buildings all across the north. So, you know, and then of course, the, you know, a lot of it's market driven. You know, the cycles in uh, the Western Canada, and particularly Alberta, you know, oil's in, oil's out, oil's up, oil's down. You've really got to be able to maneuver a little bit here in Alberta. Things do change. Well, all three of your recessions would have been oil-driven. Absolutely, yeah. Which one left the worst scars of the three that uh, you lived through? You know, I probably 2007, 2008, I had a condo project that I started, and it took me five years to get my money back. I mean, I did come out whole, but whole is a relative term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Ignoring the time value of money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. And a lot of sleepless nights. Yeah, I sure. made a trip every every month. I drove to Calgary with my mortgage broker, and we met the lender 
to assure the lender that life was good in Northern Alberta. <laughs> Everything's okay. Yeah. yeah. And then of the, you built a lot of different types of assets. Which one do you like building the most? Well, I guess without, it goes to say, I think apartments right now are the preferred choice. From a profit standpoint or from an actual building mechanic standpoint? Oh, from or? a profit standpoint. Yeah. I think it's only because while you hold, we hold 60% of what we build, we sell 33% to recapitalize, 40, 30 to 40% we sold to recapitalize. But the thing about apartments versus, say, industrial buildings is that if we have a vacancy, you drop the rent by 20 or 50 or or $100 a month and you get another tenant. I was doing 50, 100,000 square foot warehouses. If my tenant leaves, I got a big problem. So, so seasons will change before you see the yeah, new tenant. Yeah, you've there. got a yeah. vacancy for two or three years. In Alberta, it could be four or five years. So If you just get the wrong side of the cycle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, apartments are... And we've lived through some some tough times. Uh, I mean, I don't have any apartments in Fort McMurray, and I was out of that before it happened. But, you know, in the last five years, we've had a couple of downturns in Alberta. Our vacancy in apartments never exceeded 5%, and yet the market was, you know, 12 14% arguably. But if you manage them astutely and properly, you know, you go with what the market is. Someone walks in, and they can't afford that extra $25. You have a decision to make. Give them 25 bucks off the rent and you have a tenant or let them walk out the door and you have a vacancy. It's pretty simple business. I mean, yeah. take a $300 loss for the year or, you know, lose another month worth of rent, right? which is yeah, 1100, 1200, exactly. 1300 bucks. So you yeah. really, that one, and that, and that vacancy sits for three or four months. There's, it's a, to me, the decision was real simple. You mentioned that you sell a third of the apartments you build. What triggers your buy-sell decision? And is, is it done before you put a shovel on the ground or point do you make it and why? The odd time we'll decide beforehand, but we build everything as if we're going to keep. Some of the projects we have partners on, some we do not. Some of our partners would say, uh, and it depends on the deal, will say, we want to sell this, we have to sell it. And we've not taken partners because that's been a criteria for them. We said, no, this asset's one we want to hold. So it's project specific and quite frankly, more to do with location. Is it a good long-term location? I imagine looking back, you might have some regrets about buildings you sold. You know... I'm going to say no, just because <laughs> I don't want to make myself feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, real estate, I think I said before on this podcast, but real estate is great because you don't have to make every decision perfectly. You just be, be right more often than not, and you're going to do pretty well in real estate. You just got to make sure that the good decisions outweigh the bad decisions. I mean, yeah. that's so important in business. I often, I've been asked to speak at new business seminars for, for young entrepreneurs, and I tell them that there's two things you got to do. First is make sure that, that your decision-making is to ask as many questions as you can to as many people as you can because it's what they tell you that may make you realize there's something you don't know. And it's all about, in business, it's all about what you don't know. I mean, everybody thinks they know everything. The truth is, there are things you don't know. And it's that one comment or one thing that makes that could keep you out of trouble, so to speak. Or Yeah, exactly. Or get you in trouble if you don't ask the right questions. Yeah, yeah, sure. So land prices here in Edmonton are not as under as much pressure as, you know, some call it Toronto or Vancouver. But how do you make, how do you make your performers work? Because some people simply can't, you know? Well, I think having a construction company is a big part of that. We build buildings, without a doubt, I can confidently say, a 10 to 20% less than anybody else. There's no doubt about it. Can you put a per square foot number? Just give me um, a range, of yeah, course. Yeah, sure. Right. Okay, so if we uh, just, you know, four to six story wood frame today, we're in the, uh, with the parkade, we're in the 140. 
forty to one hundred and sixty-five dollars square foot range on the hard cost on the on the actual apartment itself. Yeah, and the land is the land. I mean, land in Edmonton, you know, right now, I don't think anybody's getting it for less than twenty thousand a door. I mean, and some guys are paying up to thirty-five thousand a door. So, and then plus your soft costs on top of that. Are you finding land demand increasing now? You know, we are. At the bottom of the cycle in Alberta, I believe we're coming out of the, we're, we're on the road to recovery. Land in the last eight months has probably bottomed where you can buy a, a reasonably located four-story multifamily site for 800 to 950,000 an acre. Six-story sites are running 950 to a million two. Two, three years ago, we were paying a, a million five plus for the the six-story sites, so the prices are down. Typical to Alberta, developers come to Alberta and they build too much of everything. When the economy is good, there are people come from all across, you know, literally North America and put in subdivisions or build buildings. So we had a huge supply of land over the last three years that was, a, and we've still seen some of that land kicking around, but it's starting to go. But what's interesting, I just met with the city of Edmonton last week and the service, the land service coordinator tells me that he has more subdivision slash land applications that he's had in the last four years. So are you, are you buying right now? Yes. Yeah. In anticipation of the, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's cycle driven. So yeah, the answer is yes. And we're, we're very actively looking actually. We're, we're in particular in the Edmonton market. We just, well, we just bought a site in West Edmonton on the LRT route. So that's one we purchased and we've got one in East Edmonton. In the inner city, Edmonton's seen a real resurgence on uh, infill sites, uh, particularly downtown core. One of the things that guys got to be careful with is that it's like in there's the flavor of the of the year, and so everybody's looking at downtown Edmonton. I mean, if the if all of the units that are planned get built, we're well in excess of ten thousand units. I mean, Edmonton downtown core. There, there's not the infrastructure in place for ten thousand. How many so, units are there today in downtown? You know, Edmonton? I don't know offhand, but it's nowhere like, near like three thousand, maybe yeah, four thousand, yeah. right? Yeah. So it, it goes to show you that, and there's there's one grocery store in downtown Edmonton. I mean, where are all those people going to go shopping? I mean, the truth is, those projects will not all get built. Some will get shelved. Some will sit around for the next ten years because they they're just a rezoning play to increase someone's balance sheet. But you know, that's real estate across the world. Things like that go on all the time. For the projects you're working on now, what kind of a development yield do you build to? You know, in a perfect world, we'd like to see a 20% cash on cash on the overall deal, but that's not realistic. I mean, those days are gone. Are you partnering on the equity side with other guys or are you doing it we, all yourself? We do some. We partner with some some of our projects. Um, and a, a lot of it has to do with, again, the hold attitude. Is it a hold? Is it a, is it a sell? Are you finding sort of not foreign capital, but potentially capital from other parts of the country coming to you saying, I'd like to be involved in this market, but I, you have the expertise, so can I partner with you? Well, unfortunately, it's Alberta. <laughs> and so right now, the answer is that pretty much the funding in, uh, from Eastern Canada dried up three years ago. We use ATB and Canadian Western Bank, and they've both been very good lenders for us in the last several years. So they've exclusively financed our projects in the last few years. That's not to say there are not lenders from Eastern Canada, but... You know, when you've got a, a banker that treats you well, I mean, it's, uh, you stick with them because it's all about, uh, you know, relationships. And there have been times when I've had to go to them and say, guys, come on, you've got to do better. And, you know, they, they listen. And uh, then you don't go down the road to the, the next cheapest guy because you need them sometimes. Yeah. Are you not seeing, uh, you're not seeing any Eastern money coming in, whether on the debt side or the <laughs> equity side? I would say that on the equity side, there's less people wanting to invest in Alberta. Although at this real estate forum, I think we're starting to see the, the, the belief is there. 
the change in the provincial government has get, created some optimism. And, you know, the oil is now up to $65 a barrel. Western Canada Select is around $50. I mean, all those things have got people believing that the world is, is changed for Alberta. Well, and, and I think and it has. If you think that you're at the bottom of that land pricing, using that as kind of the barometer, you know, you think there's some opportunistic capital saying, okay, now's the time to get in while it's cheap if it's going to go back up. That's true for guys like me. But the truth is equity money out of the East isn't necessarily convinced of that just yet. And right. so they'll have to see the signs. They're going to st- need to see some statistics. And the, the bad news about statistics, it's reporting old news, not current news. Yeah. They'll want to see you make a buck and then they'll come back. <laughs> to yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. A lot of them got burned too. Sure. You know, absolutely. 708, so they're still, they're still licking their wounds. And, you know, we face it on the debt side, you know, trying to place different mortgages. You know, if, they, if they've got to take the loan to a credit committee, having just to explain the Alberta moniker, regardless of whether it makes sense or not, it's just a, it's just a headache because there are people that sit on boards or whatever it is that still just have that negative connotation in their, in absolutely. their head. Absolutely, yeah. And, and for you, I think that's probably a good thing, ultimately, yeah. right? Less yeah. competition. You know the market. You know it better than anybody else. So you don't have to worry about sort of excess capital coming in from other old You know, it's funny. I, uh, when I told you about the original company I was a developer with, we did more development deals in that 1983-84 recession than we did after the recession because it was sound business decision based. There was no speculative basis for our decisions. And we're the same. When Now in a recession or coming out of a recession, we're hot on purchasing deals and trying to do deals for that very reason. So what you should be saying is that the, market, say the, the, market, yeah, the market's Don't, terrible. It's kind of like the Cheerios I think oil's commercial. going down. <laughs> Everyone just stay the heck out of my house. Yeah. You know what's funny? I, I have no problem with good competition. It's the bad competition. I, I can't stand. I mean, the guys, they fly in on a plane, a bag full of money. They buy land. They have no idea what they're doing with it. And the smaller uh, sort of uh, front men that have money that, from unsuspecting investors that they've brought with them, Inevitably, those projects, two years later, three years later, in bankruptcy. In a growing economy, when the market's taken off, they'll make the deal work because the inflationary factors have created enough value that they don't lose. But uh, I can tell you in this last town turn, there was a lot of, you know, half-built projects that uh, went sideways and the guys paid too much for the land as, you know, and didn't know what they were doing on a whole bunch of fronts. So how many, uh, how many projects do you have on the go right now? <clears throat> We have three on the go right now. Three under construction. Under construction, yeah. One's just literally a, a couple of months away. And then how many, how many do you have kind of in the uh, hopper? Two pending. Okay. Two pending, and we're looking for more. With the city for applications? Yes. Two are, one is in for the uh, development permit, and the other we're just okay. doing the drawings. So, so choose your words carefully, but how is that process with the city? Well, it's a municipality. I'm not so sure what I can say. It's frustrating is probably. <laughs> well, I, I the can right tell you. Word. I can tell you in Ontario for context. You know, we had this uh, the LPAT, the tribunal that was just now converted back to the, the <laughs> OMB, the Ontario Municipal Board. Apparently, it's going to be better. But I mean, they're they're talking two to three years right now to get anything anything approved in, in the city of Toronto. Yeah. Even when it's simple, kind of you know, not many variances. You're not asking for a sort of extreme density. Is it the same kind of experience? No, here? it's not that bad. Although I shouldn't say that. To um, the city of Edmonton has really gone through this direct control planning, you know, sort of plan everything by direct control. That's a developer's nightmare because they literally get to play architect on your project, and, and that's wrong to me. I just did the uh, first, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Maybe the first markets affordable housing project in Canada, and I had or we had the city planner telling us what color we had to put on the building. I mean, to me, that's just fundamentally wrong. They have no business doing that. And yet, here we have a planner that, and it frankly, wasn't even a, an educated planner. Just someone had a planning title, and were telling us, you know, that they wanted this and they wanted that. And so, yeah, is it frustrating? Absolutely. 
we're not talking years in Edmonton. If you have a properly zoned site in Edmonton, it's four to five to six months. If you're into the direct control stuff, that can be a year. You know, so there are some issues there. But, there are uh, certain developers around the country saying, "Oh, you're so lucky." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so. yeah well, Alberta is dedicated to personal freedom. And maybe as a reflection <laughs> yeah. of that, you know, <laughs> the ethos they have here it's a little yeah. different. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about this project. So you called it a market affordable. What does that mean? So. Um, I think it's five years ago, I met the newly appointed CEO of Capital Regional Housing. And Capital Regional Housing is the um, crown corporation, uh, or, it's, or it's a form of a crown corporation from the provincial government that administers social housing for the Edmonton area. And uh, Greg and I met, and, and he said, I've just been appointed, I'm here, um, and we talked about creating new housing and affordable housing, and how do we do that? And and I threw at him the idea of partnering with private industry, and he said, I like that idea. And I said, well, I know you like that idea, but I tried to do it 20 years ago under the old conservative government, and I got blown out of the water. And he said, no, no, we're going to make this work. And so fast forward a couple of years later, Greg gets his board to uh, agree to uh, use some of the board's money, not the province money, but the board, the, the, the capital region had been able to accumulate some funds on their own. And they took that money and invested it with us. So the model is somewhat similar to models that have been done in Australia and New Zealand, um, where we partner 50-50. Uh, on the equity side. On the so, equity so side. they're putting it in from city grants or... or wherever they got Wherever they got the cash from. Capital Regional Housing is run by a board. So that's the difference. It's not true. I mean, it's a government body, but it's got its own it's, board. It's, so it's Alberta, provincial Alberta capital from some form or fashion. Well, they're actually pr- private citizens. They're business, business people is okay. makes up, make up the board. So okay. anyway, I don't want, I mean, that's sort of, but the point is that the partnership is 50, 50. So 50, 50 on guarantees, 50, 50 on equity. We're in this together. So if we're going to sell, we have to sell together. You know, they, um, we did an RFP. We had to go through an RFP proposal. We were clearly the best proponent and it took us a while to get the last provincial government to sign off on the deal. It was, uh, we just, as you know, we've, the NDP government is gone and now we're back to a conservative-based government. The previous government, I think, really truly thought they could solve social housing and senior housing issues by themselves. And we were the first request for funds given to that newly uh, appointed NDP government and they couldn't get their heads around it. We waited, I think, nine or 12 months to get them to basically give us a... Say no. Say, yeah. Well, they actually said yes, but actually it wasn't a yes. It was, they agreed, to, they didn't see a reason why we couldn't do the deal. So it's kind of interesting. They didn't approve it. They just said, we don't see why you can't do it. So <laughs> <laughs> anyhow, the deal went ahead. Happy to say that the project's up and running. We are actually into CMHC now for takeout financing. One of the things that I should point out is that we did not do CMHC construction financing. We went conventional, 75% loan to cost, so that was, a lot of people ask me today, you know, why did you not get CMHC financing on, on the construction? I just said the process is too cumbersome. It just, it's too hard. If you don't need to do that on the construction side, just go conventional. So we ended up with ATB as our, our bank on that one. And for color on that, you know, First <clears throat> National's largest CMHC lender in the country, we do have a ton of affordable projects, construction projects on the affordable flex program <clears throat> and other standard construction insurance program. And CMEC has been upfront saying, we know that the affordable, the affordable construction program may not have been as much of a success as they were hoping it was. They are, they are looking to rejig some of the components of it to make it more attractive. Because I think the feedback from lenders and, and developers in particular have said that it just doesn't work. It is too cumbersome. There's too many, 
I don't know, straps and bootstraps and, you know, suspenders to try to make it, yeah. you know, make it work, which is just, it's again, people like you are saying, you know what, it's not worth it. I'll go the conventional route because I'm comfortable with that. I know I can, they can execute. Yep. I know what I'm getting. I know the speed's going to come quickly and they'll go to CBC for the exit because I mean, at the end of the day, the, the interest rates you get on the CBC exit, you can't be beat. But for the construction side, I don't blame you, or at least there are other participants in the market saying the exact same yeah, thing. Yeah, no, you're, it's, that's right. So, well, in this, uh, I should mention that it's um, just as a background to this, before we did the deal with Capital Regional Housing, I sat on the uh, mayor's task force for social housing regeneration. So the mayor had commissioned or put together a group of two developers and all, I think all of the social housing agencies in Edmonton are most of the major ones. So I show up to the first board meeting on this task force. I'm one of two developers and 22 social housing agencies. So think about this. So where is that money? I'm trying to put this in context of the problem that we have in this country. And those days, Edmonton, and this is 2015, Edmonton needed 5,000 social housing. Somebody needed some kind of assistance for 5,000 units. Then you've got this, so you've got a group of 20 different people fighting for government money, whether it's provincial, federal, whether it's municipal money. And one of the things our task force recommended is that you can't have 20 social housing agencies in one city. So you need to amalgamate these and put these into uh, one, one or at most two. And some of them should never have been in business anyhow. They're small groups and with some kind of administrator and an overhead that made no sense at all. And I don't doubt that Edmonton's not the only city like that. I'm sure there are many other cities across the country. Now, I understand that Toronto has the uh, GTA, uh, has a, their own housing authority. Is that, is that right? The Toronto Community Housing Corporation, right? It's the TCHC. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure about provincially. The one that I'm familiar with that has seems to have the most amount of success is BC Housing, right? The, right. the, the British Columbia Housing seems to have done that. They've kind of amalgamated, and it's really of a central crown corporation that, that does a, a wide variety of, of that decision-making. Yeah. But again, I think it's complicated no matter where you are. And for developers, I mean, you're, you're fortunate you're in a single jurisdiction, but if you're trying to go multiple jurisdictions, trying to figure yeah. out and navigate through the layers a and layers and layers. A the size of the telephone. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's I mean, not simple. I mean, and, and I mean to kind of put a circle around this. I mean, we have a supply issue in Canada, and I think there's lots and lots of people in the private and the public sector that are trying to figure it out. But it it is complicated. Well, the truth is, there is not a developer out there that is going to do social housing on his own. Why would he? There's no reason to. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, they're gonna if there's gonna be people that give money to charities to an agency, but they're certainly not able. A lot of people are not able to build buildings and develop them. So you so, mean in the absence of government incentive? Yeah. Yes, well, the government. Yeah. The problem is that the governments can't continue writing checks. The money that was doled out in the in the 70s and 80s was given out as a capital amount of money, and they were these groups were told, at least in Alberta, they were told, you cannot charge more than the rent. You cannot charge more than it costs you operate the facility. Well, repairs and maintenance 30 years later or, or capital expenditures are required, new roofs, new windows, and these organizations have zero money. They have nothing left. They can't do it. So the government's faced with these huge capital requirements on these buildings that is just not sustainable. So the model we've developed is that the partnership has a, a, an agreement where 20% of the units are rent subsidized by approximately 20%. And what happens is capital regional housing puts that top up, they top up that 20% loss to the partnership. And you ask, well, why would they do that? It's no different than anything else. The thing for them is they're in this deal from ground zero. So now they've picked up a portion of the developer's profit. 
They've picked up the, the ability now to have cash flow from market housing that they can now put in the bank and start to become self-sustaining. This model is all about self-sustaining. It's not going to solve the problems overnight, but we're just one piece of the deal. Now, we can't, in this model, we cannot solve all of the problems, but we can take probably the top 30 to 40% of the housing problems by doing it, partnering it with developers like me. There's the, the deep discount stuff. It's going to be very difficult to solve that problem unless the government agencies can get their head around the fact that you let private industry help you solve your problem. And I think a lot of the governments are afraid of public backlash. But the truth is, I mean, the waiting list to get into some of these facilities is crazy. I and mean, you've got people that are, you know, stacked on top of each other from a housing part. So are they mandating, like, I guess in the contract, that is, there's a minimum of 20% of the units must be maintained <coughs> at that 20% of market rents? Correct, yeah. And are you managing, I, I presume Army House is, is the property manager on the facility, and it's your job to maintain that those 20 units are always at that 20%? of market or 80% of market threshold? So the nice thing about this program is that we actually have flexibility. So for instance, we might have one person that actually needs a 30% discount and someone that needs a 10% discount. So there's flexibility in the agreement. The other thing that's, you'd have no, I tell you right now, if you drove out there today, you would have no idea that there are social assistance, not social assistance, the wrong way, affordable housing assistance provided to the, some of the tenants in there. We manage the property. We administer the applications. We take the applications to Capital Regional Housing, or they send us people that need assistance from a housing perspective. And the units, there's no one unit that has the subsidy to it. So every unit is open for subsidy. And the nice thing is if a person's income increases to where they can afford to pay market rents, they stay in that unit. They don't move. The subsidization goes to another unit somewhere else on the property. So they're not being moved out of that unit to Correct. somewhere else because yep. now they, they, they can afford to pay. You get so many cases where in past uh, situations where people will not take a promotion or not take a new job because they're going to lose their house or lose their... Be forced to move. Be forced to move. And the old system had these increments. There were jumps. It was the, 20, the 30% discount, the 20% discount, the 10% discount. And they would never try and improve themselves because they would lose the 30% discount. The minute they got to a certain level, they lost the whole 30% of their subsidization. Our program allows them to creep up to market. Much more dynamic response to uh, people's changing lives and incomes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and you're not sort of penalizing them to want to stay in a subsidized accommodation. And you want people to grow in their life and in their abilities and their income. So the old system is penalizing people, not promoting them to go forward. And you're being kept hold of the developer, so you're mo- and you're motivated then to continue to keep the rents going up on the, on the market units. And you're making the fee on the on the property management side. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it works out for, it's a win-win for everybody, it sounds like. So if you were presented with another opportunity <clears throat> today to do the exact same project you just did, would you do it again? Yes, absolutely. Okay, that's good to hear. So you're, you're coming down the home stretch right now. Yeah, we're finished. Market. We're in the project finished. Yeah. We're in the lease-up stage, so absolutely. And would yeah. you change anything? Not really, no. No, I think we've, uh, we've got a good partner. We've got a good relationship. You know, the project came together well. We're on on budget. You know, that's the other thing on these kinds of situations. What I have been promoted in other discussions I've had is that the governments have got to get their heads around letting private developers help them. Don't keep trying to put a square peg in a round hole. Let the market tell you what it can give you. So let the market tell you where the land's available, what they can build. Can they build uh, three stories, four stories? Can they build six stories? Can they build townhouses? And don't say to the market what you have to have. Give the market some, some parameters. I need a bunch of two bedrooms. I need a bunch of three bedrooms. And let the market determine what's the best way to get you that product. 
Because at the end of the day, you're providing supply and some affordability, which is the battle we're having. Yeah, exactly. Right now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, central planning has not worked in the past, so. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, well, it's, yeah, it's, you know what, it's, it's, a, it's a recipe to fail. Anytime you try and jam something down or force something, and we all know that governments, I don't care what government, they're, they're all relatively inefficient when it comes to versus private industry. And so you have this problem or dilemma that you, you've got this growing affordability issue with housing, and it's getting bigger by the month. What are you going to do with the problem? Did other developers in the community watch this specific project closely? And are there people considering it just in your discussion with your fellow colleagues and competitors in yep. uh, the Edmonton market? Yeah, there's, um, I'm aware of one uh, other project that's like this in Edmonton. And actually, we've been asked to, I won't say be the general contractor, we've been asked to work with them to be the general contractor. Bid on it, perhaps. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, actually, we're beyond that now. Okay. But yeah, because again, it's about it being efficient, effective, and knowing what you're doing. So we've, you know, we've been through the process and... Uh, I think that uh, I'm hopeful that that project will go ahead because it's uh, it's good for the community. So we talked about your fellow developers paying attention to the results of this you know, innovative project. What's the government response been like or government attention? Well, as you know, we've just got a new uh, conservative government. So I think it's a little early to say that they're uh, on board or not on board. But I'm hopeful that uh, they will be on board on this. I think that uh, we've had or I've had some discussions with the uh, Jason Kenney, and I, I'm quite sure CRHC is, you know, more than likely uh, pounding on the doorstep, pounding on the door, uh, looking for funding to do this. So hopeful that the province and the city and, the, and we'll try and get some federal government money. But the nice thing about this project is, or this idea, is it can be done anywhere in Canada. So I think we just need to get the politicians at different government levels to realize they can't do it themselves. I don't think you've been fortunate to find the kind of partner that you did, right? Because it sounds like their process and their ability to work with you was fairly straightforward. Absolutely. Having a group that, or a crown corporation that's got uh, what I call business-minded people on the board has made the decision, you know, and it's probably somewhat gutsy from their perspective. I mean, they're going out on a limb too. I mean, if this thing had failed, I mean, who knows what would have happened from their perspective. Yeah. I suspect some developers might be a bit hesitant to get into that kind of partnership, not knowing, you know, losing a bit of control, right? Yeah. Uh, losing the ability, to, losing some of the decision-making and being stuck perhaps, you know, with longer decision-making timeframes and things like yeah. that. Although Capital Region has been great. One thing I should mention though, you know, is that in the, uh, the current process of any of these, and I'll just generalized government type projects you know they all have a process they've got a higher you know, it's a it's an rfp for architecture rfp for design or mechanical electrical it's you know got to look at the drawings got to have full design drawings then we got to tender it by the time they do all that we've already built the building and that's why i say you know the governments have got to understand they got to let developers in sure an rfp is fine but let's make an rfp to do the whole deal and let the developers go through that and stuff. so was that the process of this particular that was a process here it was an rfp for one, one RFP. For one project, yeah, and uh, which, which is the pilot project. So, yeah, I'm really hopeful that both provincially and federally we can get some attention here in the next few months and uh, see more of these projects across Canada. So as a developer, uh, you met your goals, but you feel that the government met their goals from that they would have established kind of day one in this process? Oh, well, I'm quite sure that CRC okay. is, is happy with the end result here. Okay, well, hopefully that encourages more. Yeah. Yeah. We wanted to talk, too, about trade costs and what you're seeing in the, in the marketplace. And I, I know you're doing other projects for other developers in a wider range of jurisdictions than just the Edmonton market. So what, do you, what are you kind of seeing and what do you think is coming down the pipeline? Okay, well, let me start with a little slight variation of that. In multifamily in particular, but this applies to all construction, whether it's office, industrial, you know, picking a contractor that knows what they're doing is critical. You, I don't believe you can have a contractor that does office high-rises to build you a high-rise apartment. 
It's a different set of mechanical, electrical, different drywallers. It's a different set of expertise. There are different issues for all those buildings. And I mean, I know from an apartment perspective, no one can touch us from a construction cost point of view because we, we're doing a project for a group in Saskatoon. I would dare say 30 to 40% of the subtrades on that project in Saskatoon are guys that we use in Edmonton. So, and we're paying room and board on top of their number for them to go from Edmonton to Saskatoon. And still, still building at a discount. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so and, then, and then about the cost that you're seeing, even, even maybe just stick to the apartment space. Have you seen cost arising? I know we've heard, <clears throat> heard about forming and, you know, the cost of rebar, cost of concrete, those types yeah. of things. Has that occurred in, I mean, that certainly occurred in Toronto market or the Ontario market and others across the country. Is that happening here? We saw a big correction a few years ago on, on things like labor, but we saw a, an inverse reaction Frankly, because of Donald Trump, cost of drywall went up 30% in one go. Steel went up 30% in one go. So, you know, and we still have those costs today. So we have not seen a price reduction here. We have actually had a price increase uh, across the board in terms of, you know, different components. I would say the labor component has gone down in the last three years slightly. I wouldn't want anybody to think it's any major amount, but the rest of our products have gone up. And we hope that the tariffs come off on some of these products. And we're hoping that we'll actually see it come back to, the owner slash contractor, but it's anybody's guess whether that's going to get just picked up by the suppliers and wholesalers. If you could list, and I don't want you to give away trade secrets here, but if you could list a couple of things that you do from a cost management perspective that you think are the real, so that to allow you to keep things 20 to 30% down over kind of some of your counterparts, what is it? What are the things that you're that's doing? That's a trade secret, Aaron. Yeah. I can give you one, I can give you one, actually one or two, but first off, having your own contracting firm is number one. So, you know, Every division of my group of companies is, is accountable for itself. It must make a profit. But when you're in the same office, guys can walk across the hall and, and have it out, so to speak, and say, no, you're taking advantage of me, and no, I'm not. And, you, and so it's, it's expected that fairness is first and foremost. And we treat all of our customers fairly, and it's not a matter of gouging. It's not to be opportunistic. That's been one of our successes is you know, treating everyone fairly and looking out for the owner from a design perspective, if there's something wrong in a design, we always bring it to the owner's attention. So, so having that kind of a philosophy is really important. Yeah, and so to answer your question about trade secrets, I won't say it is a trade secret, but we at RMS do our own earthworks, excavation, sewer water. We own over 100 pieces of equipment. So you know, having your own in-house equipment uh, helps, and it helps with time. It's, I mean, you can fast-track projects. We, you know, we get in the ground and we're going, and we're not waiting we're not waiting for a first piece of equipment. That's actually how I ended up buying the first piece of equipment. It was in northern Alberta, and it was two weeks to get an excavator to dig foundations for an apartment. I had a superintendent working for me. He says, let's just rent one. I said, well, who's going to run it? And he said, I will. And that's, that's how it started 20 years ago, just started buying equipment. So, uh, it's true know. sort of vertical integration, yeah, you know, yeah, pun intended, yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, it's what you do, right? You, you need to you gotta be somewhat nimble. I mean, it's, that's how I survived through three recessions is you got to figure out what you got to do when it happens, yeah. right? I wonder what your next career is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm probably never going to retire. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Maybe be a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> Can't have my job. <laughs> so I think this is probably a good place to end. It's been super informative. We you know, thank, appreciate your time coming on here to share everything that you're up to, especially the affordable component. I found that to be really interesting. And hopefully we see that duplicated, you know, not just within Edmonton, but you know, across the country because there's a lot of, a lot of jurisdictions that are struggling with this. Yes. But uh, that's heartening to see that you had a successful partnership that resulted in 
affordable housing. Yeah, and, I, and I'm going to reach out or encourage everyone that I know to, to reach out to you to ask, you know, or developers at least ask how you did it and what your strategies were. Okay, now we're into trade secrets yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it really, it is, that sounds at least the most promising sort of strategy that I've heard in a long yeah, time yeah. for just the supply challenges that we're having in the country. Well, and I think, you know, all of us, no matter where you are in Canada, is to try and talk to politicians and try and convince them that, you know, let developers be part of the solution. I mean, uh, they're not going to do it themselves. I mean, that's clearly, the end of clearly, the story. Yeah, yeah you, they're out of time. Right? They've proven they can't. So, well, and the population is just getting older and older. I mean, the baby boomers are now sixty plus, right? I mean, uh, we're lucky in some respects that the baby boomers in Canada are actually quite wealthy, relatively speaking. Yeah, Curtis, man, thank you for coming on. It's been a, a great episode. We want to thank. Informa for having here us to record at the uh, Western Canada Department Investment Conference. And we want to thank First National for sponsoring. Curtis, thanks a lot. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks, Curtis. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.